Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter number 1, and we're going to begin reading verse number 3 in just a moment. Uh, it's, uh, I want to preach on the resurrection, but I'm actually going to be tying it back into a topic that I preached on a few times in the middle of the winter, and you'll see what I'm talking about as I get into the introduction. But let us begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that to test the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Lord, what a wonderful passage this is to consider on Resurrection Sunday, on the day that the church celebrates the resurrection of our Savior from the dead, the stamp of approval of the Father, of the sacrifice of the Son, the payment for sins. Lord, we, we pray that this will be a, a cause for rejoicing today. And we also pray for those who may not have new life in Jesus Christ, that today will be their day of salvation in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask a question, something I've asked you before, and that is this. How can you have joy in the midst of sorrow that just grips your heart? How do you rejoice when life is relentless in throwing grief-inducing trials your way. If you, if you look for a moment at our passage in 1 Peter chapter number 1, you will see that this is precisely what Peter says the Christians in Asia Minor are doing in verse number 6. Look at verse number 6 with me. Do you see it? He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various kinds of trials. Now, this is a fascinating statement, isn't it? You rejoice right now as I write to you. Now in your hearts there is joy. And when he says that simultaneous with that joy, there have been grievous and various trials. There is joy in grief. Joy in the midst of grief. Joy in the context of grief. It's not a flash-in-the-pan kind of joy, fleeting, momentary, um, is it? If you look at verse number 8, here's the joy that Peter is speaking about in their hearts. It is a joy that is inexpressible. It is filled or full of glory. The grief that they're enduring is not the daily drudgery of the 9 to 5 that many of us deal with. This is not what Peter has in mind. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about a hard life, a difficult life. And he compares life in verse number seven 
to a fiery furnace in which gold is being refined. And so he is speaking of a sore and piercing trial. He's speaking about tears. They're grieving. And in the midst of this grief, they rejoice. How can you have this kind of joy? How do you explain this kind of joy? How do you explain joy that is inexpressible and is so great that language fails to articulate it, so full of glory in the midst of piercing hot furnace of, of grief? How do you explain that? Maybe a more urgent question would be, where do I get that kind of joy? Where do I get my hands on joy that not only is not shattered by sorrow and grief and trials when they come, and they always seem to do, but a joy that endures. And a large part of Peter's answer has to do with the reason that we are here today. It has to do with Easter Sunday. It has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so let me show you what I mean. And dear believer, this is going to be a blessing to you. I sincerely believe that. It's going to bless your heart as it did mine this week in studying it. If you would please look at verses 3 to 5, Peter describes his readers as having a living hope. They have a living hope. Verse number 3, the spring, the supplies, the joy constantly to your heart, their hearts, bubbling to the surface even when they're engulfed in, in terrible suffering, is this living hope. Now, a word about hope in the New Testament that's, that's very important. Hope in the New Testament is not mere aspiration. It's not like they're saying the same kind of hope that we talk about when you say, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or, um, I, I, I hope that I score a good round when I go play golf. Um, I'm not sure, but I, I have confidence. That's the kind of hope. This is not the kind of hope that he's talking about. It's not a merely aspirational hope. It's not merely a wish. There's no certainty about this kind of hope. That's not at all what the New Testament has in mind when it speaks about Christian hope. Let me, let me give you a paint, picture, paint a picture of Christian hope. Picture with me for just a moment. Um, living with significant hardship. You are scraping by, just barely. Week after week, you're trying hard to find ways to make ends meet, and it's a constant struggle. And then, one day, a lawyer comes to visit. Now, that's not usually good news, is it? Sorry, lawyers, if you're out there. It's not normally uh, good news. But today is much different. Instead of bad news, the lawyer tells you that you are about to inherit, uh, you're, about to, you're the beneficiary of a great inheritance. There will be some months between now and your receiving of that inheritance when life will go on much as it did, much the same. You lead the life you've always led, but now you know for sure that there is an inheritance coming. Your perspective has entirely changed. The daily struggles that you endure somehow have gotten just a little bit easier knowing that you have this inheritance coming. The weariness in your labor is a little bit lighter because now you know that everything is about to change. You are about to inherit a great inheritance. 
And this is precisely what um, Peter says the Christian's point of view really is. Look at verse number four. Here's the Christian hope. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And beyond that, it's kept in heaven for you. There is a great inheritance for the believer that is kept for you that nothing, nothing can touch, nothing can spoil, nothing can remove. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's yours, it's guaranteed. And that is the living hope that Peter is talking about. It's like an artesian spring, constantly supplying joy here, even though for right now you are being grieved with various kinds of trials. There's a living hope. It keeps supplying joy, inexpressible and full of glory, because we know that our circumstances, although they may be hard and sore right now, everything is going to change one day. And soon, when the glorious inheritance is at last ours, we will have living hope. And that hope becomes reality one day. Isn't that great to know? I don't know what you're dealing with today. I, when I get to know people, I find out that everybody is being grieved by various kinds of trials. Some of your trials I hear are just heartbreaking. And I see this joyful Christian and in the background, you have no idea the hardship of the trials that that Christian is enduring in the background. And this is what Peter says that the Christian life is really like. Now, what is that foundation? What is the foundation of our living hope? Well, verse number three, this is where I want to camp today, is um, where we are going to find a foundation of living hope. Verse number three says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now listen, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's the foundation of our living hope. Here's what generates that joy that's not touched by trials and sufferings. Joy that can exist in the heart that grieves. There's three parts to this foundation that we're going to look at today. First, living hope is a possession of those who are born again. He says, born again to a living hope. Secondly, we are born again to a living hope, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then third, part of the foundation of our living hope is the mercy of God that the Father that stands at the base of all of it and is the cause of everything else, of the resurrection of our new birth, of our living hope, of joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, it is all from a gift of God's mercy. So let's look at point number one, born again to living hope. Let's think about that first. We have a living hope when we are born again. It's when this joy begins to bubble to the surface in our hearts when we're born again. We are born again to a living hope. Christianity, and this is important for you to understand, Christianity is not, first of all, an ethical system. It's not a set of rules. It's not an abstract morality. It's not, first, a philosophy 
metaphysics or a worldview. It's not a religious code. It's not ritual behaviors by which the faithful express their devotion. No, although Christianity has an ethic, it has a worldview, it has a body of doctrine and practice that allows us to express our devotional lives, that's not what Christianity is at its essence. Now, what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions is very important. Every other world religion can be expressed as humanity moving to God. In other words, it's movement toward God. But the Christian gospel, the fundamental movement, is not first from us towards God. The Christian gospel, Christianity, the primary movement is from God to people. Every other religion can be examined and shown to reflect the human quest for the divine and attempt somehow to move from where we are to communion, to encounter and persuade the deity to respect us. But in Christianity, the things that that we do express our grateful response that he has already condescended and stooped down to us in our helplessness and in our sin and has done something supernatural in our hearts. And in the New Testament, it's called the new birth. Christianity starts with God coming to humanity through the new birth. It's not like all the other world religions where the humanity moves to God and tries to get approval. Now, what is this new birth? What is this new birth? Well, most famously, you can remember it in John chapter 3 and verse number 7, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. God, by supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, must break into your life and renovate you and make you new. At the end of 1 Peter chapter number 1, if you look down at verse number 23, look at 1 Peter 1, verse number 23, Peter speaks again about the new birth, and this time he tells us how it happens in our heart. The the means that God uses to affect this new birth, he says this, in verse number 23, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so the living hope that springs up into our hearts was given to us when we were given new life through the living word. Now think about this. This is true of me, and most likely it's true of you. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times a thousand times. Maybe you listened to the preaching Maybe it's been your experience as often as not on Sunday morning that when the preacher gets cranked up with the same old tune, you tune out and you doze off. That was the case for me. I grew up in church and many, many times the, pe- the, pra- the preacher or the, the youth pastor would get cranked up and I would just completely tune out. I've heard this before a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, it's the same old story, but not today. One day... The same old story somehow grips your heart. And that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the gospel is, yeah, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times before. But for the believer, it's a story, it's a reality that grips your heart. 
and you become irreversibly changed, changed forever. And as God's word is read and preached about in Christ crucified and risen and all these things, your heart just springs up for joy. Now, it's not always perceptible. We don't always see it. It's not always dramatic. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus in verse John chapter 3. If you remember, the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes, but you see its power. You see its effects, and it's mysterious. And yet when God works by His Spirit and gives new birth to our hearts, it is a thoroughgoing, life-changing, mighty. And sometimes we don't always know when it happened, but that it happened is important. Some of you grew up in church, and over time, you came to take on these beliefs and you believe them. You can't give the win, but you know that that happened. For me, the win was very uh, dramatic. I remember the day, and I remember the hour, and I remember the time and everything, and the change was dramatic. But that's the way the Holy Spirit works. And so let me ask you a question. And I want to ask you simply and directly. Everybody in the sanctuary today, please listen to this question. Have you been born again? Has God, by the Holy Spirit, mysteriously, supernaturally, maybe quietly, and yet in reality, really, has He invaded your heart and made you a new creature? Nothing else matters compared to that question. Nothing else matters, whether it's about your retirement, whether it's about your job, whether it's about your, how your kids are doing, or the future of our country. Nothing else matters compares to this one question. Have you been born again? There's no living hope unless the living Word of God takes your dead heart and brings it to life. There's no artesian spring bubbling up in enduring joy, even in the midst of grief for you. There's no inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you without the new birth. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, so now he says to you, today you must be born again. Have you been born again? That brings us to our second point. Born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice that the living hope that supplies enduring joy comes to those who have been born again. Listen to the, the terms, the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At the heart of Christianity is the fact of the resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb on the third day. He did not swoon on the cross to be re revived in the, in the cool of the tomb. When the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, they punctured his heart and blood and water flow. He was dead. Roman soldiers are, are practiced executioners at crucifixion site, and they were not nearly so easily duped. The disciples didn't steal the body. Who endures what the disciples endured for the sake of a lie and fabrication anyway? The loss of all their worldly goods, the loss of their reputations, suffering persecution, martyrdom? No, 
They did all that because Jesus Christ is alive. He was alive back then, and he's alive today. Today, as we sit here, he is sitting on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the Father, united to the deity of the person of the eternal Son, is Jesus Christ sitting in a human body. The body into which the spear was thrust, the nails were driven, was given resurrection life by the almighty power of God. And he's sitting in heaven today. And if you have been born again, it is through this resurrection that one day you will, you will stand with a glorified body praising that same glorified Jesus Christ. And Peter here tells us one of the reasons that matters so very much it is, he says, the cause of our new birth. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what the new birth is. It's a kind of resurrection. It is, it's the resurrection of a dead soul to a, a new person. For, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together by Christ, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And that's why Easter matters so terribly much. Because Jesus lives. God gives new life to dead sinners. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. There is a union that God creates between a dead sinner and a living Savior whereby life flows from the living Savior into the dead person and life flows into our hearts and we have resurrection life. We come to life, the life of the vine, as Jesus' famous metaphor in John 15 puts it, flows in all the branches that are connected to him so that his life is given to us. We have new life. And that's why being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead gives us living hope, gives us a spiritual security that can't be destroyed because it is rooted not in us, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't originate in us. It is rooted in the risen Christ who now reigns in glory. Our new life, our Christianity is not our decision. It's not our aligning ourselves with a set of doctrines or lifestyle choices. It's not the fruit of prayer that we prayed one day. Neither does it rest on the strength and depth of our faith. It rests on union with Jesus Christ who lives. Hebrews 7, 16 speaks of the resurrection of Christ as having an indestructible life. He says this, he says we have an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is untouchable. You are utterly secured. You died, Paul said, and, and he puts it in Colossians 3.3, 3, and you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
You are safe because you are the one with, you are, I'm sorry, you are safe because you are one with the risen Christ. It doesn't rest upon you. It doesn't rest upon your strength. It doesn't rest upon your wisdom or your goodness. It rests upon him who lives forever in the power of an indestructible life. Because the tomb is empty, you live. You are now a new creation, believer in Jesus. Because the tomb is empty, you will never die, believer in Jesus. Because the tomb is empty, you have a living hope. You have an inheritance that will one day be yours. And because the tomb is empty, you can rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory, even in the midst of grief-inducing trials of various kinds. Because Jesus Christ lives, dear Christian, you are safe. And that brings us to the third point I want us to see today. And that is the new birth, the resurrection of Christ, and then finally, underpinning it all, giving rise to ultimate, ultimately the living hope that fuels our joy is the mercy of God. That's the third thing, the mercy of God. Verse number three, one more time. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy. Now, you don't put yourself into union with Jesus Christ. You can't generate the new birth for yourself. We are, according to Ephesians 2.1, dead in trespasses and sin. We are flatlined by nature. There is no heartbeat, spiritually speaking. If today you don't know the risen Christ for yourself, the bad news is you cannot change your condition. You are powerless you must be born again. You must be born again. You have no hope without that uh, new birth. No living hope. But you can't affect the new birth in your own heart. You must have what you cannot produce. And so what must you do? What must you do to get what you can't produce? To get what you can't take on for yourself? What must you do? You must throw yourselves at the mercy of God. You call out for mercy, and that's at the root of everything. At the root of everything is the mercy of God. He abounds in mercy, ready to give it to all who ask. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, it was mercy that sent Jesus. It was the mercy of God for you. It was mercy that nailed him to the tree. And mercy that pours out heaven's fury on our guilt resting upon his shoulders there. It was mercy that rolled the stone away and gave new life to our Savior's body. It was mercy that presides on the throne of glory so that dead sinners who flee to him for mercy meet ready to answer, ready to receive the mercy that they need. Praise be to God for his abundant mercy. Now, some of you are ready probably to do a thousand things. Some of you may be ready to say a prayer, to sign a card, to go to church, 
to amend your lifestyle, to do better, to try harder. You didn't realize that resurrection life was an offer to you on the basis of the sure, sheer mercy alone of God. Do you see what that means? It's free. It's a gift. Not wages in, refer, in return for something you have done. It is a gift. It's mercy. It's what is offered to you this Easter morning, this Easter Sunday. That's why Jesus rose. There is a gift of new life offered on the basis of sheer, undeserved mercy. Every person in the sanctuary today who has new life in Jesus Christ got it simply because of the sheer mercy and undeserved mercy of God. Would you come today? Would you come this morning now and bow before the Father and cry out for mercy? It's available to you in the risen Christ, and mercy is what you will receive, new birth, a living hope, and indestructible joy. All of those are freely available to you by the mercy of God. That is why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for the mercy of God that is at the heart of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for the mercy of God that is at the heart of dead souls coming to life in the new birth. We want to thank you for the mercy of God that is at the heart of the joy that we can have that is indestructible and full of glory. And yes, we may be enduring various trials right now, but even those trials are part of the mercy of God because it is the mercy of God that allows us to endure. It is the mercy of God that gives us reward as we go through those trials. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. And once again, I pray that there are people here who do not know Christ as their Savior, that they will fall on the mercy of God. And today will be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.